Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two segments today. We'll hear first from the journalist Joel Shalit on the recent Israeli election. And then Martin Lukash will explain everything that's wrong with Justin Trudeau, even before the blackface photos emerged. First, the Israeli election. On September 17th, Israel held elections for its parliament, the Knesset. The results were extremely inconclusive. The popular vote was evenly divided, with less than eight-tenths of a percentage point separating the two leading parties, the Blue and White, led by Benny Gantz, and Likud, led by Benjamin Netanyahu. Blue and White got one more seat in the Knesset than Likud, but both counts are only about half the majority needed to form a government. For a moment, though, it looked like the long reign of the ghoulish reactionary Netanyahu, universally known by his nickname Bibi, was over, but it was not to be. This election followed another inconclusive affair in April, which ended in Netanyahu being unable to form a government. Hanging over Netanyahu's head, a likely indictment for a number of possible crimes, including bullying a newspaper and a website into favorable coverage, arranging weapons sales to Germany that could benefit his friends and family, and a possible bribe offered to a political candidate in exchange for dropping a case against his wife. It's no accident he's good friends with Trump. Netanyahu now has four weeks to form a government, though it's not clear he can. What's it all mean? Here's Joel Shalit to explain. Joel, a frequent behind-the-news guest, is an Israeli-American journalist and co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Battleground, a new Brussels-based news and opinion site. You can find it on the web at thebattleground.eu. Joel Shalit. What is going on with the uh, Israeli election? The results are very inconclusive, and it uh, doesn't seem like there's a government yet. What's happening? As of today, negotiations for a grand coalition had started. So uh, Netanyahu's party will like very likely, if they're successful in negotiating a coalition agreement, remain in office with um, Kachol Lavan. Kachol Lavan means blue and white in Hebrew. Kachol Lavan party is his primary coalition partner. Those are the national colors, blue and white? Yeah, it's the, the, the flag is blue and white. It's our red, white and blue, so to speak. We expect there will be some kind of agreement unless Netanyahu insists on something particularly outrageous. To the extent that one can foresee disagreements between Likud and Kachol Lavan, they have very strong differences uh, on religious issues. Netanyahu has is, is always been beholden to the religious parties and always seeks to curry favor with the ultra-Orthodox um, and the national religious. So um, we'll see to what degree um, demands from or for that camp made by Netanyahu could conflict. Gantz is liked in some left-wing quarters in, in Israel, though by no means universally, uh, at least on um, questions concerning religion. He's been working with the Religious Action Center, which is you know one of the more progressive religious uh, advocacy organizations in Israel and is you know more interested in democracy than theocracy so we'll just have to see it's it's too early to forecast what we what we could very well anticipate is 
uh, a repeat of the grand coalition governments, the national unity governments, they called them in the 1980s, between uh, labor and the Likud, which saw labor and Likud trade prime ministers every two years. Um, so it's Yitzhak Shamir, uh, Shimon Peres, you know, and now it would be Benny Gantz and uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. But uh, all these pronouncements that it was the end of the Netanyahu era are premature. Yes, I think they do signify or they are responding to some fairly serious changes we saw in the voting that took place. But they do not necessarily spell an end to his tenure. I mean, he's supposed to be indicted in two weeks. These indictments, it seems like every other month an indictment is imminent, then he always scrapes by. He's kind of Trump-like in his ability to avoid any kind of uh, consequences for his actions. So, so is this for real this time? Yeah, I mean, the, it's judgment time at this point, unless he can broker, as is conjectured, an agreement to forestall his prosecution by a coalition deal that would promise to pardon him of any perceived wrongdoing. That was Netanyahu's hope under different projected coalition arrangements that could have come out of this election. The party uh, led by his former justice minister, Ayelet Shaked, um, had made commitments like that to him. What about Benny Gantz and and this blue and white uh, party? What, What do they stand for? Who is he? Benny Gantz is a, 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 a is a former IDF chief who is best known um, for having uh, commanded the IDF during Operation Protective Edge um, in Gaza in 2014, uh, if I'm correct. And uh, these operations just they keep on getting new names, but they seem like the same operation over and over again. Summer Rains was one of them. Cast Lead was another. There were approximately up to 2,000 Palestinian civilian casualties in that operation. So he is frequently uh, criticized for the body count. And uh, it has been one of the criticisms that have been made towards him um, in, in his campaign by, by left-wingers and by, by Arab Israelis. But the joint list, which is a group of Arab parties, right, endorsed <laughs> Gantz, uh, despite that uh, bloody record? Yeah. I mean, it's the second time that Hadash, which Ayman Ode, who leads the joint list, it's the second time that, that Hadash, the party of which he is also the head of, has endorsed an Israeli prime minister. The last time was in uh, 1992 when, when Hadash endorsed Yitzhak Rabin, but, you know, the beginning of what became the peace process. Um, you know, the joint list is Israel's best known current left wing list. It's a collection of uh, 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 Arab parties and Arab uh, and one and one Arab Jewish party, Hadash, the former communists. Uh, they still are a communist party. Um, they just don't call themselves that. Hadash means new in Hebrew. And uh, Eman Ode, as he made clear in his New York Times opinion editorial on Sunday, um, was that he wasn't endorsing Gantz um, because of Gantz's policies or, or or platform, but because Gantz. Uh, Gantz's victory represented the first proper victory over Netanyahu in the last decade electorally and provided an opening for um, pro-diversity, pro-multicultural initiatives in Israeli society. What differences, say, actually, Gantz came out in the head and, and, and became the, the head of state, which doesn't seem likely at this point. But um, what likely differences would there be between him and Netanyahu in policy? Yesterday, the Palestinian um, prime minister at an event in, um, I believe, Ramallah, 
said the difference between Netanyahu and Gantz is like the difference between Coke and Pepsi. It's, you know, they're, they're practically the same person in two different parties. Um, between Gantz and Netanyahu, that may be a fair comparison. Kachol Levan um, is, for all intents and purposes, a neoliberal party not too dissimilar from uh, Emmanuel Macron's En Marche. That's being generous towards them. Um, but they represent a similar tendency in Israeli politics, though not quite as doctrinally executed as the you know, European version would look like. But they are uh, primarily secular, and uh, they represent a less religiously conservative uh, voting bloc uh, coming out of cities like Tel Aviv and Haifa that are more educated. Um, they're people who at one point would have voted for the Labour Party and don't anymore. Whereas Likud is really um, become the party of um, the acceptable party of far right extremists for far right members of the political establishment and the business community. Likud is actually not, it did not poll as well as it had in previous elections. I think it only got 31 seats in the Knesset, um, which is not, last time I believe it did 35 before this. Um, so they're going down, um, but uh, Likud is, has functioned primarily as a coordinating arm for Israel's religious right, Israel's settlement right. Um, all of the nasty parties in Israel uh, have essentially found a home within the leadership of the Likud and run on the same list in every parliament. Whatever happened to the Labour Party has disappeared? Yeah, the Labour Party has been disintegrating for 20 years. The first time that it was clear that it was in trouble was when a number of its legislators moved to Ariel Sharon's Kadima party, which was essentially a version of Kahol Levan, though further, a little further to the right, that existed a decade ago. The uh, Labour Party, uh, for all intents and purposes, is lost its social democratic compass and um, was responsible for a lot of the sort of the neoliberal reforms of the last three decades that gradually moved Israel away from socialism. If you were truly on the left, there was never really a reason to vote for it. And, you know, since the early 90s, except for the peace process, there have been other better social democratic parties um, to vote for, like Meretz, which also did catastrophically poorly in this election as well. Electorally, the left has disappeared more and more from the Jewish community and what we consider to be the real left-wing parties or Arab parties, the parties that ran um, under the joint list. And those parties, incidentally, received a lot more Jewish voters this election than at any time in their history. So what percentage of the population um, would lean left in that direction? They earned 13 seats in the Knesset, which made them the third largest party in Israel. Um, so that's nearly half of the votes of Likud, the leading governing parties. So that says a lot. They would never be admitted to a governing coalition, right? No, and this is the tragedy of it all. Arab parties are never included in governing coalitions, even though Arab politicians may have friendly relations with politicians and governing parties. They are systematically excluded for racist reasons. So, for example, Benny Gantz could have built a coalition with a reasonable governing majority if he had moved to add a party with as many seats as the joint list to his takeaway. But he won't do that. He would rather govern with Benjamin Netanyahu and Avigdor Lieberman. There was a really good 
opinion editorial in Haaretz a couple of days ago. I think Carolina Landisman wrote it. And she made the argument that what Gantz needs to do is ignore these historical taboos about including Arab parties and, you know, be a magnet for inclusivity and bring in both Arab parties and ultra-Orthodox Jewish parties and try to create, you know, a proper mirror of Israeli society. I believe that that argument is, is, is a sound one. But how could that be stable? Aren't these people in a profound opposition to each other? You know, a strong leading government should be able to find ways to pacify everybody. You know, it's just the poor leadership in Israel that, that continually plagues every government that fails to, you know, uh, be able to exercise any discipline in their coalitions, even with extremely disparate entities, you know, ranging from the Shas, the the, the Mizrahi uh, ultra-Orthodox party and, and uh, the joint list. Um, Israeli politicians need to find need to find a way to get these people to sit in the same room. I mean, one of the reasons the country doesn't work for so many reasons is precisely because no one is interested in finding ways to make the factionalism work in favor of the country as opposed to against it. Wouldn't a large portion of the Israeli population recoil at the idea of Arabs in government? There are good reasons to cooperate with with Arab parties, Israeli politicians cooperate with Arab parties all the time. Um, from the Jewish side of things, they just don't do so above board. They do so privately. Um, so if they can do it in private, they need to be able to move it into the public uh, eye. You know, just because some nutbag settlers from Brooklyn, you know, might threaten to assassinate an Israeli politician who took that kind of initiative doesn't mean they still shouldn't try. I'm speaking with Joel Shalit, co-founder and editor of The Battleground. So what will the fate of the settlers be uh, under a new government? Are they uh, sacrosanct? The settlers are always catered to by Netanyahu. So the settlers will try to maximize their influence um, through any government that includes uh, Likud. Um, It's not clear to what degree they have a voice in Kahol Lavan. That said, there was an interesting article by Meron Rappaport uh, today in 972 Mag, which for your um, American readers, if you want to read a really excellent Israeli left-wing publication that's not Haaretz, uh, 972 is your other choice. Rappaport basically made the argument that um, based on the polling data that we have so far, the settlers are starting to decline in their electoral popularity and um, um, they're losing influence. They're, they're, um, yeah, he even went so far as to say that they're, uh, they're at risk of uh, becoming uh, uh, yesterday's uh, political story, which is interesting because the, the last decade have been all about the settlers and all about Kahanist ideology, which is a big part of who they are. Netanyahu said a couple of weeks ago that he was thinking of uh, annexing part of the West Bank. Was that a campaign ploy or is something like that going to happen? It was trotted out strategically. I don't think there's any doubt that he held it to this point, to the last minute in the election campaign, to bring out last minute voters. That's something that Netanyahu tends to do. Um, he's actually made that pledge before, though. It's not the first time, but I, he, you know, I just don't think anybody remembered it. He was also trying to outflank Gantz by saying that because it's a commitment Gantz has made as well. I do think that uh, Netanyahu, regardless of the strategic invocation of this, uh, I do think that Netanyahu was sincere. I think he really would like to annex the nearly the entire Jordan Valley. It would it would cover practically the entire border with Jordan. 
Um, so it's a strategic value in that regard. And Netanyahu himself, that guy just has quite uh, impressive survivorship skills. Oh, it's what, amazing. What's his secret? How does he soldier on from day to day, uh, despite what seems like fatal troubles, and yet he uh, he's, he, he just uh, keeps returning? What's the secret of his success? Oh, his secret sauce is that he's an authoritarian personality. It's a sort of cite the Frankfurt School. He really believes he has a, a, a sense of his own messianic purpose in Israeli society and in Jewish society in general. I, I, he's a frighteningly sophisticated political operator um, who most importantly believes in his right to rule, irrespective of whether uh, that right is earned democratically or not. Netanyahu, for as long as I've been aware of him as a political entity, as I wrote, you know, yesterday in, in the battleground, I, you know, he's been a topic in a family discussion um, for well over three decades in the Shalit family. The very, very controversial person in everyone's families in Israel, regardless of whether people actually like him or not. He's someone who inserts himself, tries to insert himself in, in, in your life and, and become your leader. He's the platonic form of an authoritarian leader. He uh, personalizes politics and plays a role in um, everyone's private lives to the degree that he can through um, social media. Um, Netanyahu is everywhere. We might as well. Somebody needs to make a satirical film about Israeli politics in which all the characters pass portraits of Netanyahu hung in everyone's homes and in restaurants and cafes. He has a Stalinist kind of presence. You know, we shouldn't have uh, forgotten from all of our experience uh, living under dictatorships in Europe and in the former Soviet Union and, and Nazi Germany. He wants to stay where he is, and I expect he probably will remain in power. Evidently, there's a substantial constituency for that sort of you know, authoritarian, messianic uh, personality in Israeli society. It's a very religious country. There's a direct correlation. Um, and uh, even amongst persons who are of what you might call soft religious background, who aren't ultra-Orthodox, who are, or who are not national religious, which is the, the denominational designate equivalent of the Judaism of the settlers, but Netanyahu is also someone the Americans want to stay in power. Netanyahu is, um, he has a, uh, he represents the United States in all of its most negative influences in Israel. He is America and Israel. And the Republicans really feel that and they find him to be of tremendous use, you know, um, regionally as well as um, um, to fortify their, their, their position in respect to the Jewish community in America. Netanyahu and Obama did not get along, right? There was a, frankly, racist contempt for Obama um, coming from Netanyahu, right? Deeply. Um, yeah, Netanyahu really surprised a lot of uh, American Jews who were not aware of the extent of um, the anti-black racism that exists in Israel. And, um, I mean, no one really knew it existed until Obama and Bibi made it evident that they did not get along in the press. Um, even though uh, there has been several decades worth of racism against uh, Jews of Ethiopian origin in the country and enormous racism towards the um, asylum seekers that have come from Eritrea and Sudan in the last 20 years. So then uh, the transition to Trump was uh, something uh, Netanyahu welcomed. It was the best thing that could have happened to Benjamin Netanyahu. He, um, Netanyahu, 
There was a joke in my family where my father often dubbed Netanyahu the senator from New Jersey. And uh, Netanyahu, uh, Netanyahu is often derided for being more American than Israeli and more Republican than Democratic, so to speak. Um, uh, he grew up in the United States and um, uh, uh, was educated in the United States and found his natural home in the GOP and in the far right continuum of American politics in places that Jews don't normally inhabit. This is one of the reasons why Netanyahu finds it possible to coexist with white nationalists and outright anti-Semites and not Lincoln Island. You know, it's not just that Zionism is open to that. There are a lot of right-wing Zionists who could never do what Netanyahu does in hanging out with those people. But Trump represents all of the things about far-right conservatism in the American political establishment that Netanyahu always embraced and that his version of revisionist Zionism always embraced. And so I, I can't imagine a better pairing of two political leaders than Trump and Netanyahu. And Trump's image is all over Israel. Last time I was home seeing my family, I must have seen four or five billboards with his face on it. We never saw anything like that in Israel until now. It's shocking. It's weird. And it's uh, as clear a sign as any that we're a colony of the United States and not a sovereign nation. Of course, you know, a lot of uh, anti-Zionists will tell you that the United States is the colony of Israel, right? Uh, you know, Congress is Israeli-occupied territory, as they say. Uh, Zionist-occupied government. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so is anything going to change, uh, anything significant going to change uh, as a result of this election, or is Israel going to continue pretty much in the same pattern as it's been? Assuming that that there is a uh, national uni unity government formed between Kahol Lavan and Likud, not too much. No, I don't think that, that much will change. I think we saw the changes that are taking place in the election data. So the changes are under the hood. The victory is the, the advancement of the joint list. The victory is the data that indicates that the settlers are starting to lose favor in public opinion. As usual in Israel, you have to look between the lines to try to find places where you can um, work off of to uh, secure greater political and social change. It's not a lot, but, you know, we only have crumbs to work with to begin with. And our families are there. Our culture is there. Our history is there. We have a stake in what happens there, even if the news is always bad. I was Joel Shalit, co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Battleground, a new Brussels-based news and opinion site. You can find it on the web at thebattleground.eu. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of Bucket by the Mekons from their album Existentialism, which was recorded live in one take with a single microphone at a Brooklyn show in 2015. Next, our neighbor to the north. Justin Trudeau, son of the revered Pierre Elliott Trudeau, who led Canada from 1968 to 1984, became a crush object for many American liberals when he was elected Prime Minister of Canada in 2015. That crush deepened when Trump became president. He seemed so progressive, not to mention boy band cute, a sharp contrast with a hideous reactionary in the Oval Office. JT's image was mostly fake, but few Americans had bad thoughts about him until photos of him in blackface, taken while he was in his 20s, were published a few weeks ago. What context did those emerge from? And more broadly, just what are Trudeau's politics like? Here's the Montreal-based journalist Martin Lukash with more. His book, The Trudeau Formula, Seduction and Betrayal in the Age of Discontent, is just out from Black Rose Books. Martin Lukash. A lot of uh, the aura of Justin Trudeau that you uh, evoke is kind of familiar to Americans who have been watching the Democratic Party for some time. You apply a a patent of diversity and inclusion to fairly standard neoliberal economics and don't even really follow through on the diversity and inclusion all the time. And then you disappoint your voters and lose to the right. Uh, Now, maybe that's getting ahead of things right now. But um, is that uh, a fair summary of the Trudeau model? To some leftists in Canada, we are definitely worried that it's essentially a, a lag effect. Like Canada is a few years behind a very similar dynamic uh, that we saw unfold in the United States. Um, if anything, the fact that the Conservative Party in Canada doesn't have a more capable faux populist leader is probably the only reason that Trudeau is going to hang on for at least another four or at least two years. Yeah, the Trudeau formula in many ways is like the Obama model. And interestingly, the Liberal Party borrowed heavily from Obama, both in terms of their playbook, you know, their marquee policy in 2015 that helped them win the mantle of a change agent was the tax the 1% policy that they borrowed directly from Obama, even though when it came push to shove, that tax policy was actually just a shuffle that enriched the top 10% rather than the middle class or working class uh, as it was supposed to. Meanwhile, you know, the, the wealth of the top percent, as we saw in Obama, in the Obama years has, has, has accelerated here in Canada as well. Besides the policies, I mean, they bought, borrowed consultants, they borrowed the liberal database and renamed it Liberalist. Even some of Trudeau's cheesiest slogans, which he was heavily mocked for, came straight from Obama and were just poor paraphrases. The economy grows from the heart outwards. Yeah, yeah. It was, That's uh, really bad. I think he said something like, we're proposing a, a strong and real plan. We can grow the economy, not from the top down, but from the heart outwards. He was rightly mocked for that. But actually, interestingly, I, I discovered in my research that it was actually just a poorly remembered quote from Obama who had said something like, the economy grows not from the top down, but from the middle out and the bottom up. Yeah, but the heart is especially sweet touch there. Preceding him was about a decade of Stephen Harper, right? What were the Harper years like? One of the things that the, the Trudeau's team was so adept at is playing up Justin Trudeau and his personality as a direct contrast to the Harper years. I mean, Harper was, in every respect, uh, a kind of like cold, vindictive, calculating politician who kind of micromanaged his one third of the voting electorate, which was what he needed in our first past the post system to, to hold on to a majority rule for, for several years. What was interesting about Harper was that he made his allegiances quite clear within the corporate elite. Certainly, the um, you know middle scale employers lobby and associations who fiercely oppose unionization and, and workers' rights. Um, he made clear his 
So one of his main policy ideas was was just to dig up as much oil as possible and ship it to international markets. Abroad, in foreign policy, he was a pretty straight kind of neocon who couldn't do enough to help Israel and you know participated when he could and as a junior partner in in U.S. adventures. In some ways, it's it's to his credit as a strategic political thinker that he was able to, for so long to stay in power, really suppressing many of his own socially conservative views and not really trying to advance, for instance, his anti-abortion agenda. And so he was quite a conniving, successful politician in that respect. And in terms of his neoliberal agenda, he was quite methodical. He went at the state with a kind of a thousand cuts, never any large privatizations or large moves. It was all very, 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 very kind of incremental. But he achieved quite a bit in terms of the usual corporate tax cuts and, uh, you know, maintaining large subsidies to corporations. He didn't hold back when it came to his many enemies, which included, you know, indigenous peoples and environmentalists and uh, any NGOs doing international solidarity work abroad. And so he provoked a lot of resistance. I mean, it was in those years that we saw Canada's Occupy movement emerge and the indigenous Idle No More uprising, which really swept the country and made huge, a huge impact culturally in this country in terms of shifting the political discourse. By the end of his reign, there was a great deal of uh, unrest among the corporate elite in this country. Yeah, that's interesting that he lost the confidence of the corporate elite and uh, the liberals then seemed like their best option. Yeah, I mean, he couldn't get pipelines built. He couldn't ink any major international trade deals. He was also kind of kind of like a cultural boorish embarrassment abroad. Like he, he would skip the main UN summits around the climate change. He would ham-fistedly like thumb his nose at Obama, much like the Toronto mayor, Rob Ford, a crack smoker, the elite in this country who definitely generally perceive themselves as a more enlightened liberal class had definitely basically had it with Harper. Yeah, you've got this one uh, bit where uh, the CEOs are saying, raise my taxes, which you know, it's kind of hard to imagine American CEOs saying that. But there was some some sense among the elite that they had to give, that there was an awful lot of resentment uh, and rage uh, on environmental issues, on economic issues, uh, on indigenous issues. And uh, these elites decided that uh, they needed to give an inch in, in the hope of preserving a yard. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how Canada's corporate class, which is organized primarily through this common lobby front called the Business Council of Canada is, according to the founder of Davos, is the most effective CEO organization in the world. And they are very adept at coordinating the interests of the corporate class. And actually, Harper would snub their nose at them as well, because the prime players in that are financial Bay Street interests. And uh, that's not where he felt he owed his allegiance to. And yeah, there was this point not long after the financial recession where they had a meeting and for whatever reason, whether it was that or, or the expectation of a, of a housing bubble or just the sense that, you know, there's this rising tide of anger in Canada, which most people outside of Canada don't really know about because it's not reflected at all in how our country is depicted, certainly in the American liberal media. Canadians are just nice and sweet people. Exactly. But when you, re when you really dig into the polls, there's actually a huge amount of class rage. I mean, there was this poll done by uh, a pollster who actually the Liberal Party relies on quite closely. He put this question to Canadians. I agree that if wealth continues to concentrate at the very top and things stagnate for everyone else, I expect to see violent class conflicts emerge. And two out of three Canadians agreed with that, which is 
in totally at odds with the perception of, you know, nice, middle ground, loving, polite Canadians. Yeah, I mean, I imagine CEOs see something like that and the fear that their throats are going to get cut in their sleep. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of it. During the campaign, though, the um, that's 2015 electoral campaign, the New Democratic Party, which has a long history of running from its past as a social democratic party, actually came off as fairly conservative. And the liberals, Trudeau and the liberals, uh, ran to its left. Yet uh, that didn't cause them to lose the confidence of the Canadian corporate class. So how'd that work out? So the problem with the NDP, one of the problems with the NDP is that they've been slip sliding to the center for 30 years or so. And then especially in the last 10 years under Jack Layton, who, you know, many Canadians consider the standard bearer of progressive politics. Uh, but it was under him, actually, that the NDP finally fully embraced their inner Blairite self and, uh, you know, centralized the party, put it into the, in the control of a clutch of consultants, cleansed any mention of socialism from their constitution, and uh, basically tried to turn themselves into a lighter version of the liberals. So it was pretty easy for the the liberals to as they often have done, campaign to the left and, and all, you know, ultimately abandon all their promises and govern quite to the right. But I think one of the reasons that this played quite well with the corporate elite, some stern voices, establishment voices, especially the ones that run the newspapers, didn't really understand what was going on. And they would constantly criticize Trudeau for being a you know, tax and spend liberal or indulging uh, redistributionist dogmas and class warfare. But in fact, Trudeau's team made a very concerted effort to you know, span out across the country and make it clear to the various chambers of Congress and you know, empire clubs of, of Calgary and petroleum clubs that this was just a kind of deft maneuver to act as the kind of you know, shock absorber of discontent and resentment that they have always played in Canadian politics. There's a speech that he gives to the Canadian Club of Toronto, which is kind of like the ritziest luncheon speaker series of the Bay Street financiers, where he says, look, it's, uh, it's either me or far more radical options. It's like, you know, maybe it's me. I, I'm what stands between you and the, the pitchforks. Yeah, that's what I was reminded of when I was reading that bit. So what really would scare uh, the elite? They're willing to give a little bit, but not too much. Uh, what would too much be in their eyes? One way we know for sure that Trudeau was never really a threat to the corporate elite is because during his campaign election in 2015, they, they barely made a murmur of protest. But what we saw in 2016, when a document called the Leap Manifesto was brought into the NDP convention, we saw a, a sign of what that kind of uh, fright would actually look like. So the Leap Manifesto was in some ways a, a kind of precursor to the Green New Deal this uh, statement manifesto put out by a coalition of social movement groups, environmentalists, unionists, uh, feminists, indigenous activists, that basically put forward the proposal that we could act to address the crisis of climate change in a way that would also fundamentally advance a progressive agenda, you know, unleash huge amounts of green jobs, restore and create generally 21st century public services, offer reparations to indigenous peoples. It was brought into the NDP by grassroots activists and ultimately at the convention in 2016 endorsed by the majority of the membership. The political, corporate and media elite in this country just had like an epic meltdown. Brian Mulroney, who was the former prime minister of the country, conservative, progressive conservative prime minister, actually spoke to the 40th anniversary of the Business Council of Canada that I mentioned earlier. And he was like, 
they were all celebrating how basically Canada had been remade in the interest of corporations. But he was like, guys, did you see what happened at the NDP convention last week? It's not good. Like ideas that I had thought I had consigned to the dustbin of history are back. He said, it's a philosophy of economic nihilism that must be resisted and defeated. And mind you, the title of the, the subtitle of the Leap Manifesto was uh, a call for a Canada based on caring for the planet and one another. To them, social democratic ideas fused to climate action um, amount to that. And basically, the, you know, the media elite in this country went on a rampage describing the leap as a, a surefire recipe for electoral suicide for the NDP. And there was only one poll that was done. But interestingly, as we've seen in the States, it actually turns out there's huge support and popularity for these kinds of ideas. You know, upwards of 50, 60 percent of Canadians then, when there wasn't even a single political party advocating for these ideas, were already supporting it. And now you're seeing the NDP and the Green Party in Canada start to compete for that kind of mantle, uh, having seen how popular it, popular it is in the States. And we're seeing upwards of 70, 75 percent of support for Green New Deal style program. That support goes up by 10% when it's funded by increased taxation on corporations and the wealthy. Green New Deal politics are kind, could be a kind of antidote to Trudeau, a kind of kryptonite, right? Fulfilling that kind of agenda would implement all the ideas he claimed to champion but has not pursued at all. His ability to succeed with his shtick has been in, in part due to the fact that there hasn't really been a morally clear political alternative. I'm speaking with Martin Lukash, author of The Trudeau Formula, Seduction and Betrayal in the Age of Discontent from Black Rose Books. So there really wasn't much of redistribution under Trudeau, was there? No, of course not. And in fact, even the policies, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that they had run on that gave the simulation of redistribution, like this hike on the top, uh, top 1% in taxes, was actually, when you looked at it closely, was just basically a scheme to shuffle, you know, minor increases on the top 1% to the next 10%. And, and even, you know, smart economists at the time said, look, if you don't close all the other tax loopholes that exist in the Canadian tax system, then even, those, even that top 1% is going to get away with uh, evading legally or illegally those taxes. So <laughs> we've seen no, no redistribution from, from Trudeau. And in fact, Trudeau had made clear, even in the last election, this was, has been rarely noted or criticized, that he didn't even agree with the principle of universality of social programs. So even if there had been redistribution, there was no plans for any kind of bold, ambitious new social programs, which you know Canadians desperately need. Uh, a couple of specific areas. The pipeline policy. There's a lot of objection to uh, the uh, the pipelines for the tar sands project going to uh, the Pacific ports. And the American firm that was behind this pipeline, Kinder Morgan, uh, was pulling out. And then uh, Trudeau bailed him out, right? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, Trudeau, Trudeau came into office as this river paddling environmental Adonis, got nonstop praise internationally. But what is remarkable about them is the same time as he was grandstanding about environmental politics, you know, in the run up to his election and then in Paris, where, you know, he got rousing standing ovations for saying that Canada is back. You know, at the same time, they were simultaneously uh, giving very quiet cues to the oil sands barons that, in fact, they had no disagreements with Stephen Harper's agenda of digging and shipping the stuff. His disagreement was merely one 
about marketing. He, he thought rightly, and this was his, the pitch he made basically to the oil elites in, at the Calgary Petroleum Club, I think as early as 2012 or 2013, two years before he became prime minister, that Harper had uh, failed. He had provoked all this resistance, uh, hadn't built a single pipeline, you know, had turned Canada into this climate pariah internationally. And Trudeau felt that uh, he could actually get the job done much more effectively. And uh, it proved true for the first few years um, because Canada all of a sudden became this climate hero. But if anything, he was just more effectively pushing this agenda of expanding the oil sands. And some of his main policies, like the carbon tax, right, which, again, he's been heralded as a climate hero for, was actually the preferred strategy of the Business Council of Canada, this top corporate lobby, who felt as early as 2007, 2008, there was a lot of anger towards big oil in Canada and that the most effective strategy would actually be to make, to, as, they, as one of their key strategists put it, to put a bit of water in their wine, to basically make a concession like a carbon tax, you know, which ultimately wouldn't cost them very much, or if it was a neutral tax, it wouldn't cost them at all. But it would give the semblance of commitments to green policies. And meanwhile, they could use it as a fig leaf for massively expanding the tar sands. Harper, you know, essentially refused to do anything with, a, you know, the, his detested three-letter word. But Trudeau would prove to be a much more canny politician. That said, you know, even with his re, the rebranding, the resistance in BC and elsewhere across the country to pipelines was so fierce that simply stamping the pipelines liberal wouldn't wouldn't make a whit of difference. And if anything, resistance has grown to those pipelines in the last few years as, as people have been moved by the urgency of the climate crisis. The pipeline company, uh, Kinder Morgan, they knew that that pipeline was uneconomical as early as 2011, 2012. And they've been trying for years, actually, to foist it off on Canadian politicians. They tried first with the Alberta premier, Redford, Alison Redford, and failed. And under Trudeau, he had made this bargain with the last Alberta NDP premier, Rachel Notley, that if she accepted his plan for a carbon tax, which is what the corporate elite wanted, then in exchange, he would fiercely advocate for the Trans Mountain Pipeline. His entire climate, national climate plan thus hinged on his getting that pipeline built, weirdly enough. And ultimately, when push came to shove, yeah, I mean, he paid $4.5 billion to buy this pipeline, apparently a billion dollars more than it was worth, and then essentially committing to spend another 10 to $15 billion to get it built. And it's striking because like that move, of course, completely undermines the notion that the Canadian state couldn't act ambitiously even through nationalization to ameliorate Canadians' conditions, right? But the only actual bold step that he's taken has been uh, an entirely reactionary one. Whenever you uh, talk about uh, resource extraction, resource development in Canada, uh, you collide with Indigenous rights. And uh, he certainly talked a good game on that, but uh, in practice, it's not been so great at all, right? Yeah, so on, on this front, too, I think it, he has shown himself to be a much more canny executor of the interests of resource companies in Canada. Probably more than on any other issue, he made the resetting of relations with Indigenous peoples his priority. The full skills of his symbolic posturing were brought to bear on, on it, right? So he was like, you know, he would go for paddles down the Ottawa River with indigenous youth or carry bottled water in communities that don't have running water up in the north. You know, just talked a, talked a great game. You know, when indigenous protesters set up a, a teepee on Parliament Hill just before the 150th birthday of Canada, 
under Harper, like they just would have dispatched the security and police to like get rid of those kids. But Trudeau paid a morning visit in his like favorite jean jacket, which he always wears when he's in a sensitive political moment and, you know, sat down and held a feather and shared conversation with these indigenous youth. Right. So um, there was this way in which they tried to manufacture a great deal of consent for the prevailing existing agenda of Canada's Ministry of Indigenous Affairs, which has been to basically deep six the hereditary and Supreme Court recognized land rights of indigenous peoples. So they poured a ton of money into it. They used their skills at cultivating relationships with the more establishment indigenous uh, leadership. You know, even as some people might know in the States, they put as their justice minister an indigenous politician from BC, which is the highest role that an indigenous person had ever had in the Canadian government. This was all done to construct this new public consensus around indigenous rights in response and in reaction to the strength of the indigenous rights movement uh, over the previous years. And so, you know, they made racism an overt taboo and they, um, you know, changed all the names of a lot of institutions and called inquiries. But ultimately, what was happening was more of a, a shape shift than a sea change in the fundamental policies. So the Canadian government still under Trudeau is basically pursuing the what we what is in Canada called by a very ugly word, the extinguishment of land rights. The goal is to essentially like, you know, consign indigenous nations to permanently to small reserves, give them delegated rights, basically as ethnic municipalities to manage their own poverty. But what goes without saying, and is always unmentioned in this entire, you know, reconciliation politics are the key issues of land, power and resources. And so there's no question that there would be any sharing of that, which of course is would be the basis for any kind of real self-determination in Canada. But Trudeau for many years, probably for the first two, three years of his administration, had this agenda humming along incredibly well. And if anything, they had gotten far further than the Harper government had in terms of pushing indigenous communities in negotiations to actually relinquish some of these land rights. Uh, They've run into trouble more recently because um, some of these uh, resistance camps that have been set up to block pipelines in BC escalated and ultimately the British Columbia government, probably with Trudeau's consent, sent in dispatched uh, heavily armed police to batter down these peaceful blockades that in this indigenous community that Unistoten had put up in northwest BC. And it started to unravel Trudeau's image as a conciliatory peacemaker with indigenous peoples. And now uh, to uh, the current scandal. It seems somewhat appropriate that a guy who's lived by the image is Justin Trudeau has should, uh, if not die by the image, be at least uh, very seriously compromised or get into deep trouble. The um, the blackface pictures. What do you make of that? Were, were you surprised by this, or is this, you know something that's typical of somebody out of his class? And um, what do you think is going to be the result of it? I mean, it definitely bespeaks the kind of elite colonial culture in which he moves. The there have been three incidents that have been. Um, reported now. And in fact, he's he has refused to deny whether there were others. And interestingly, the third one, which took place at a whitewater rafting outfit that he used to work at in his uh, in his 20s, that outfit actually has this very fitting uh, colonial name. It's called the uh, Nouveau Monde, uh, the New World. In, in English Canada, blackface has for a few years now, at least a few decades, just been taboo, right? At least in 
polite, like uh, elite circles. But in Quebec, blackface continues to be acceptable. You see comedians and um, even on the public broadcaster in, in Quebec, you see blackface regularly still. It in part has to do a little bit with the kind of double colonial complex of Quebec elites. They refuse to, you know, they themselves are sub, have been a, historically a subjugated population, but they refuse to see themselves as colonizers as well. So there's a, there's a particular tolerance for blackface in Quebec where Trudeau was raised. That plays a part in this as well, because I think people in the States certainly are used to blackface being a bit more of a vestige of the Deep South. But in Quebec, in many ways, still has that kind of culture. What's been interesting is that the debate in Canada has fixated on his personal actions, right? And he himself has acknowledged, I think to his credit, that his privileged background is what created all these blind spots for him. But what I think to me is more interesting is the the more profound structural racist policies that he has overseen, right? Whether Whether we're talking about the continuation of the dispossession of Indigenous peoples or the immigration system that he that he has overseen. I mean, again, Canada has this rep as this like, you know, that their immigration system is like the equivalent of teddy bears and hugs from Trudeau at the airport. But it's actually quite a quite an exclusive, uh, restrictive immigration system that in some cases has beaten Trump to the punch. Like, you know, when Trump was deporting uh, Haitians, Canada had actually beaten him to lifting the moratorium and was deporting Haitians back to Haiti in, in, in rapid numbers rapid high numbers. So, or, you know, Canada's role, for instance, in, um, in arming the Saudi regime, right, which is with a historic $15 billion deal in combat vehicles, uh, which the Saudis, of course, are using to devastate uh, Yemen. I would like to see that the conversation in Canada shift to that broader debate about the deeper racist structural issues in this country, because I worry, for instance, that what's going to happen now is that it's true, Trudeau has taken a, a hit in the polls, and we're seeing even like the conservative party, right, who have deeply racist and even more explicitly racist policies as part of their program gaining in, uh, in the polls. And they've been chewing him out, for instance, for, you know, his racism. It's a quite a, a depressing kind of political moment in Canada. Do you think it's going to um, hurt his reelection chances? I think we'll see him drop a little bit now in the polls and then uh, probably rebound closer to the election in a month's time. I think he, he will probably hold hold on to a minority is my guess. And that's certainly the best case scenario for the progressive majority in Canada. The only times we've ever gotten major social gains in this country have been when the liberals are reduced to a minority and have to depend on, for instance, the NDP uh, to stay in power. That's when that's the only time really they make concessions unless there's unless social movements are powerful and knocking at their door. That was Martin Lukash, author of The Trudeau Formula, Seduction and Betrayal in an Age of Discontent, just out from Black Rose Books. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some more from the Mekon's existentialism album, This Skin Trade. Till next week, bye. Now what a place, now what a place for the man to fall in. He goes tumbling down the street. And all the birds, they are singing in the treetops.
to say